Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another edition of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, as I like to do uh, every episode, I like to tell like sort of a, a, a cold open or story of some kind that relates in in the tiniest or mo- maybe the most major way to my guest. This sort of relates in a sort of six degrees of separation kind of way because my guest today, uh, Steve Coonan, um, is a guy who uh, recently in, in TBS and, and Turner uh, Entertainment uh, 2010 brought Late Night to his cable network. And um, so this relates to that in a way. About 20 years ago, I believe it was in 1993, I was fortunate enough to have a meeting with uh, Jay Leno and Gary Considine, who was the... Uh, executive producer of all the late night franchises of NBC and I sat down with them and I was having a great meeting because they were excited about uh, moving forward with the Tonight Show and Dave of course uh, didn't get the Tonight Show and moved on to do a show on CBS and um, basically Dave had started on CBS had gotten a little bit of a head start and was doing incredibly well and was doing about 7 million people uh, every night. And when I sat down with them, I asked Jay a question that I remember vividly. Uh, and after uh, words, I did something that I think uh, I might have regretted. I asked him, how are you going to beat Letterman? 
And Jay answered that question with an answer that I just naturally just laughed out loud in the meeting. It just was comical to me. It was just this, to me it was funny what he said, but he was totally serious. He looked at me and he said, Barry, I'm going to beat Dave with comedy. And I just, I, I couldn't stop laughing. And when I stopped myself and he said, no, no, Barry, I'm serious. Dave is, is more of a cerebral guy. He does a few desk pieces. He does a little monologue. And if you notice his show, he brings out his first guest maybe at five minutes of 12 or 10 minutes of 12. I'm not going to do that. I'm a comedian. I work the road 200 dates a year. I'm going to do a stand-up monologue that's going to be like 10 to 15 minutes long. When I come back, I'm going to do another piece that's going to be a 5 or 10 minutes long. Then I'm going to do another break and do another comedy piece. And I'm not going to bring out my first guest till 12.05. That way, I'm going to have all comedy in that first half hour. And as you know, Barry... No one turns off comedy. But if Dave has a first guest, I don't care if it's Madonna or the mayor of New York or Mick Jagger, there's always somebody who's looking at that broadcast and saying, you know, I don't like that person. But they'll never turn off comedy. And Barry, I'll tell you something, I guarantee you, in two years, I will beat Letterman. And in 1995, Jay was true to his word. He beat Letterman. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Very excited for this episode with a guy who I have known for a number of years who's been incredibly good to me. Uh, one of the most amazingly friendly, nice, kind, wonderful people you'll ever meet in the business. Maybe not today, but you'll ever meet. I find it interesting to see that uh, I was reading something in Forbes magazine that said, uh, you'd much rather, you'd much probably see Steve Coonan apt to attending a Braves, Hawks, and Thrashers game in Atlanta with old elementary school friends than sitting down with agents in L.A. power restaurants. So I'm honored that you came up here to sort of work your way to the middle with me up here in this uh, place. But give you a little bit of backstory on Steve Coonan. He's the president of Turner Entertainment Networks, where he oversees the programming, marketing, scheduling, strategy, and operations for four of cable television's strongest brands, TNT, TBS, True TV, and Turner Classic Movies. And um, he's just an incredible guy, and I'm honored to have him here. 
please welcome everybody, my guest, Steve Coonan. Thanks, Barry. It's wonderful being here. Oh, we're going to have a lot of fun. I have so many questions to ask you, but we're going to start off with, because I believe you're from the Atlanta area. Is that I correct? I am an Atlanta native, born and bred. So what's odd is that you, you know, you're, you're born and bred in Atlanta. You worked your way up through the ranks in Atlanta, and now you're still working in Atlanta at the mothership there. I'm very fortunate. There's not a lot of native Atlantans. We don't breed well in captivity. <laughs> and um, I've had two great jobs, almost two 14-year careers with Coca-Cola and Turner Broadcasting. So I consider myself, I'm going into my Lou Gehrig speech way too early, but I consider myself one of the luckiest people in the world. Well, that's okay. I'm going to fit my walker for tennis balls after this, there so we're go. good. So take me back, because a lot of people who listen to these shows, they're very inspirational because they, they let people know that people start, there's a, there, it's zero, zero. Everyone starts at zero, zero, and so did you. So you, you get through with college. You sort of uh, probably don't know exactly what you want to do, but you focus in on the beverage area of marketing. You're a marketing major in college. You, uh, I believe you went to the University of Georgia. Yes, I did. And so you decide to work with liquor companies. I yep. believe your first job with, was with a whiskey manufacturer. Yeah, I, I literally wanted to, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a liquor salesman. That was my aspiration in life. <laughs> I worked in Why? Liquor. Were your parents I, alcoholics? I re- no, my, pa- my parents didn't drink. In fact, <laughs> you couldn't have found liquor in my house. But I started working in liquor stores in high school. I'm Literally, my senior year of high school, I was 18. How many times were you robbed? None, but I, got th- I played with the gun a couple of times, and I thought <laughs> I was going to shoot my... Jews don't play well with guns. Jews don't play no, well with no. guns? No, no. So, I, I mean, I would profile when people walked in and go, I wonder if I have to pull my gun on them. But I never did. <laughs> And, Where um, was the gun? It was under the counter. It was a little bit of a Don Knotts um, moment, me with the gun, but it, it was endless fantasies <laughs> of having a shootout. I don't even know where the safety was on the thing. So thank God I never had to use it. But I worked in a liquor store, and when I was sitting around, I'd read the beverage magazines and the Wine Spectator and Beverage Journal, and I liked it. And I so I wanted to go work in the liquor store. So I worked in liquor stores through college. I used to make drinks on weekends and you know, and I got a job selling beer, wine, and spirits to grocery stores, restaurants, and it was great. And if you're good at it, you um, usually get picked up by a distillery. So Hiram Walker out of Canada hired me to represent Canadian Club, Drambui, Kahlua, Covassier, to distributors in the southeast. You make a long story very short for your listeners. Um, I got a call one day and got offered to move to headquarters in Walkerville, Ontario, Canada. A 27-year-old Atlantan, got a great offer to be VP of Marketing in Canada, but the only thing in the town was a distillery, a strip bar, and a Chrysler plant. There was some kind of odd symmetry with those three. I'd like to ask you, which one of those places would you be most likely to show up at? The Chrysler plant. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so I... um, I I said to him, no thanks, I just got married, this isn't the right time. And they said, you don't understand. We're restructuring, we're eliminating Atlanta. I said, wait, let me get this right. You think enough of me at 27 to make me head of marketing, but not enough of me to keep me? They said, that's right. So I quickly learned about companies and the way that they think. And so I left. I did not have a job. I one day 
Five o'clock, dialed the phone, area code 404. So you're 27, you got no job. No job. Married. And, and you're married and and obviously probably no support from your parents, so you're like... Stuck. You're essentially uh, maybe uh, a couple of rooms away from being homeless. Well, no, I mean, I had six weeks of severance, Barry. Don't oh, be ridiculous. All right. Six weeks. And, Big um, money back then? Oh, huge. A <laughs> couple, of, couple of thousand a month. <laughs> So I picked up the phone and I dialed area code 404-676-2121, the world headquarters of Coke. And I said, head of marketing, please. And a guy picks up his phone, a guy named John Farrell, who recently just passed away. And I introduced myself and said, I see an opportunity for you. I see that um, Mothers Against Drunk Driving is coming up. This is 1986. And there's a real opportunity for Coke to have a pro-social peace in every bar in America, which is both good for you for volume and good for you because you're helping with designated driver programs. And so he said, come see me. I came to see him. They hired me. We created designated driver programs with Coke. And I realized that ideas could be my currency. It wasn't about booze. It was about ideas. So you, but also the marketing of those ideas. So you, you created you, you just you just out of thin air you just went for something you created an opportunity but you had to go down there he didn't even have a job opening no, he did not have a job so opening. you they you were so imp- consultant so you're so impressive in the room that he created a job for you wow you know thank you but um, they actually hired me as a consultant so I did what every smart 27 year old who gets a consulting contract I went out and bought a sports car that day <laughs> <laughs> I thought my wife was going to kill me. But um, I work, went from Coke. I had 14 different jobs in 13 years. Um, I 14 different jobs at the Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola company. In, excuse me. 13 different jobs in 14 years. My, my bad. And I um, headed up worldwide advertising. I created the Coca-Cola Always campaign. I worked with so Ovitz. So I wanna, I, well, let's get, we'll talk about Ovitz in a second because I want to ask you about that. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I'm always fascinated, and I think everybody who watches a campaign on television always says the same thing after they see something. Like, in other words, like, uh, you know, we try harder or Coke always. We always sit back with our feet on the coffee table and say, 
how fucking difficult does it take to write Coke always? I mean, th- that guy's making millions of dollars, and he comes up with Coke always. That's you know. So you know what I mean? Like how how is well, it that you sell these? I, I prefer to look at. And it. I some love the, the campaign. I'm just saying. Some that, of the best ideas are the simplest, and you know, the idea Pepsi had been beating Coke severely in the marketplace for many years they really were because that's something as for myself you know as a person i don't think there's anybody i know that thinks that pepsi was ever beating coca-cola they did michael jackson was a very effective weapon and they were a big part of pop culture michael j fox did incredible super bowl ads and coke had kind of lost its creative way and so the company through herbert allen who was on the board introduced um, Michael Lovitz, who was sitting at the nexus of power of CAA, and asked Michael if he would be interested in developing advertising for Coca-Cola using his clients. And he had everybody from Rob Reiner to Madonna to Tom Cruise. And Ovitz said yes. And I had been fortunate enough that when Coke on Columbia Pictures, I was the liaison on a project on Ghostbusters 2 between the company Coca-Cola and Columbia Pictures. And I went out one day to pitch all the promotions that we were going to do, all the marketing ideas that Coca-Cola was going to do to help sell that movie. And in the room was Dawn Steele, who was chairwoman of Columbia Pictures, and Ovitz and Bill Murray and Danny Aykroyd. And I had a good pitch that day, and I was funny. And the meeting's over, and Ovitz grabbed my arm. He goes, you're a Jew from Atlanta? I said, yes, sir. He said, Jews don't live in Atlanta. I said, well... (laughs) I'll go back and tell my family, but I think we're all going to be bitterly disappointed if we have to move. <laughs> and he said, every time you're in L.A., I want you to come see me. And I really don't know who he is. So I was dumb enough. Every time I came to L.A., I would come sit with him for an hour. Oh. And we would sit in his office and talk and just talk about stuff and business and things. But again, if I could break in for our the people who are uh, listening to this, you go in again, there's nothing there's nothing happening. You go in to CAA, you create something out of nothing. And now, because you're so great in the room and you're so great with having to navigate there, now the guy wants to meet with you every time you're in. It's like a Tuesdays with Maury kind right. of thing. Yeah. And he's one of the most powerful people in the world in terms of entertainment. I, and and I he came to find that. And and you're a guy at Coca-Cola who's had 13 jobs in 14 years. And he wants to sit down with you for an hour every time you're in town. Yeah. And so he becomes, they, CAA gets the advertising assignment. And he says, I'll do it on one condition. The only one I want to work with at the company is Steve Coonan. And one day I was director of promotions for Coca-Cola Fountain Cup business. The next day I'm head of worldwide advertising <laughs> for the biggest brand in the world. So it was, it was an amazing, amazing ride. And it became because of relationships that I built, you know. It's the relationships. and they, But the thing that about you that always fascinates me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, you always, if you are a guy who really is planning things out and thinking things out, I would be stunned because you're, you seem to be the type of guy who, you know, you, you get the meeting, the, persis- the persistence gets the meeting, but you don't impress me as a guy who's sitting down for hours and hours making notes. Okay, Ovitz is here. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that. You seem to be like a natural kind of guy who gets in there and you let your just you channel through you, I'm which a, is very unusual. I'm a big fan of letting the universe 
directly rather than no i this was no master strategy the master strategy was to be a liquor salesman and that dream was gone 10 years earlier <laughs> so i had to come up with something else and, i don't um, think the universe really uh, wanted you to be a liquor salesman a liquor so salesman. i think the universe failed you on that one Absolutely. but it got you it got you where you were going to go but then. you know it, it sounds so contrite but it's simple just treat people well and you know being able to talk and make people laugh and you know, connect and build trust and build relationships has served me well. And then I've delivered results for those people who've entrusted me with responsibility. So you're at Coke, you, you, they're getting beat by Pepsi with the Michael Jackson and Michael J. Fox campaigns. You create these new campaigns. You start utilizing the CAA client base, uh, which Coca-Cola realized that pepsi went and they spent a lot of money on people and they were they were sort of resting on their laurels you convinced them to reach deep in their pockets and spend money that they never spent before that kind of money and do the campaigns with ca so you do that you turn it around coke starts coming on top again yeah the polar bears became a global sensation now how did the polar now the polar bears how did they come about there is a wonderful guy who lives in la named ken stewart and he was married at the time to one of the CAA agents who was working on the business. And his golden retrievers reminded him of polar bears. And we thought they were big, bold, and ice cold. And so we thought they were a great metaphor for Coca-Cola, which is big, bold, and ice cold. And created them, and literally it, it took off. We were getting thousands of fan letters. We sold millions of plush polar bears. And it became an iconic signature that I take great pride today, 19 years later after we launched it. The polar bears still exist. This is what I, I and I want to talk a little bit about this because it doesn't relate to your career, but it relates in life to how we see things in terms of the advertising. What people don't realize is that once you choose an animal to align with your brand, no one else can take the animal, even though they're allowed to take the animal. No one else does it because they know that they're going to be aligned. So it's like the Geico with Geico. Yep. And now you notice they started introducing another one, the owl. And the camels. And the camel. So it's like you notice people introducing these things now that if they work, no one else can take the, the animal away from them, per se. So I think that's fascinating as well that, you know, no one can really do the polar bear. It's locked in. They've become iconic with Coke and they make you smile. And they're just a moment, instant moment of enjoyment. And it, it became one of those, you know, no pun intended, magic in a bottle. So take me to the end of the line at Coca-Cola and how things came about where you started working with Ted Turner and uh, well, Turner Entertainment. In the late 80s, I was running our sports and entertainment and I realized that static signage in a stadium, I was watch actually watching, I'm a huge baseball fan, and I was watching a 1994 Chattanooga Lookouts versus the Birmingham Barons on ESPN because Major League Baseball was on strike. And the game was on because Michael Jordan was playing for Birmingham. And so that was the only reason it was on, and I had it on. And the announcer, I think it was Jim Cott, said, and look at that Coca-Cola sign in center field. It's been there since 1925. And while he was pointing that out as a historic fact, I had a chill down my spine. Here's come the invention of radio, television, internet, 
And we're still doing the same thing with our advertising that we did in the 20s. Just painting it red, not painting it relevant. So I decided that we were going to have to have relevant presence. So to your beloved Boston Red Sox, we built a program called Monster Refreshment and put giant Coke bottles on the wall. First advertiser ever on the Green Monster. Built a theme park in Atlanta on top of Turner Field called Coca-Cola Sky Field. Built a giant pavilion out in San Francisco at Pac Bell Park with a 200-foot Coke bottle that's a slide and a giant glove that's become an icon of the two-time champion World Series. Now, certain stadiums at the time and still, aren't there certain stadiums that are aligned with Coke and certain ones that are aligned with Pepsi? Now, uh, explain this to to our our listeners because this is fascinating Coke to me because i don't understand do you like you're fighting over let's say the San, let's say baltimore wins the uh the world championship right. of the, the super bowl uh, which they did and their stadium has a contract let's say with coke and let's say it's a five-year contract and then at the end of that contract pepsi is trying to get in are they just offering everything for free like what how do you how They're do you offering millions of dollars usually a local baseball team will have a real resonance. I'm sitting in your office today, and there's a lot of baseball iconography in here because you identify with the Red Sox. Well, if Coke is one of the sponsors and supporters in a legitimate way, then you're going to feel better and more predisposed to that brand, and it gives them a point of differentiation. So marketing rights in sports have become incredibly hot, and we were really on the cutting edge of this stuff many, many years ago, and the point was you had to make it relevant, not necessarily make it red. And relevance in a baseball stadium was giving people something to do besides watching the game because the game is so leisurely and slow placed. And I'm sure everybody's heard the George Carlin bit, the difference between baseball and football. And it's true. Baseball is, you know, absolutely innings, no time limit, anything you want it to be. Football is militaristic timing, <laughs> bombs, blitzes, <laughs> et cetera. So I won't go into that bit because I wouldn't do a good job with it. But I got noticed by the Turner guys because I took the Coke brand with our team and David Rockwell, who's become a very famous architect, global architect, was our partner. And we built this outdoor amusement park and we built a 80-foot Coke bottle with 6,200 baseballs, chest protectors, cleats, pitching rubbers. Okay, so but when you're doing that, let's just take the Coca-Cola thing you build on the Green Monster. Right. They're not... You're paying to build that on the I'm green. Paying to You're build paying that. to build it, and you got to pay money to to license it and have it there every month. You got to write them a check. But we grew that business in Boston big time. Huge, and but also like when you talk about the slide or the amusement park, you're building the entire thing, so they're getting their amusement park for free. Absolutely, and you're paying money per month. Right, but I built an icon in San Francisco that can be seen everywhere on the Embarcadero on the wharf. And the one in Atlanta at Fulton County Stadium, or Ted Turner Field as it's called, is the number one most driven by point in all of Atlanta. So we kind of knew what we were doing also. It was a win-win situation. Why didn't Pepsi know what they were doing? I think Pepsi's strategy was simpler, and that was just to make their product available. We wanted to dimensionalize ours. We wanted Coke to stand for refreshment. So Coca-Cola Skyfield had misting stations. It allowed people to interact and kids to run the bases. We had a faux field up there. We had a million-dollar check on the wall for any fan who caught a home run hit up there. You'd get a million dollars cash that day. 
and Mark McGuire came within about 15 feet of hitting one up there. Nobody else, you know, I was really upset when the steroid error ended because I wanted somebody <laughs> to hit one up there. Um, I thought he did hit one there. No, he came really close, really, really close. And we had fun with it. We would bring in armed guards and have a million dollars in cash when McGuire came to town and used it as a real marketing platform to drive the business. So, you know, and so you go from, and we're going to talk about the segue into Turner, but you go from working at a company that is number two at the time to bringing it to number one. And when you're number one, let's face it, there's always somebody behind you trying to take you down. And we've heard the... uh, like the, you know, in Reebok or whatever, the, the slogan is beat Nike or whatever it is. That's their slogan. So what was Pepsi doing to try to take you down? They saw you. You were doing all these innovative things. What were they doing to counteract you and to try to beat you and take you down? Well, Pepsi played a different game. They were very much invested and still are in the celebrity of it all and trying to have their products be conveyed through the celebrities. But in... The on the ground, we used to call it the air war and the ground war. And we beat them in the ground war. And that was the on the ground ideas that people could dimensionalize, whether it was bringing back the contour bottle, the unique Coke shake bottle that you could recognize even in the dark. Let's talk about something that didn't go well during your tenure at Coca-Cola. I believe you were there when this happened. Were you there when... uh they got rid of classic Coke no. and went to new billion-dollar fuck-up Coke? No, I came the year after, and I actually— um, You came the year after? I came, I, that was in 85, and I came in 86, oh, so got I it. missed okay. that. Got but it. Plus, trust me, we made many a mistake. You know. Tell me a mistake that you made at Coke that you're like, oh, I really screwed this one up. This one just didn't work well. Oh, I, there were so many of them, and a lot of them were failures of execution, but one of the things that I'm— constantly ridiculed for is I had this idea for you know we, we were living in this incredible time where it was literally going to change millenniums turn from 19 you know 19 the 20th century to the 21st century so I came up with a really big idea that on New Year's Eve 1999 people would look up in the sky at the moon and we would have coca-cola advertising on the moon Wow. And so I was reading an article one day, and and I'm a voracious reader and use that for a lot of connections. And a University of El Paso, Texas El Paso professor had an article that said the moon had moved six inches closer to Earth. And so my first inclination (laughs) is, is there a tape measure long enough? I'd really (laughs) like to see that tape measure. And, And there wasn't. So I called the guy, you know, and I said, how do you know? He said, well, we shoot a laser up there, and we measure the refraction back, and we track that. And I said, so when you shoot the laser up there, can you see the laser hitting the surface of the moon? He said, yeah, with a telescope we can. I said, so if we built a ton of lasers, (laughs) could we build a pattern? Could we create? A gobo. Exactly. A gobo on the moon. A gobo, for those of you who don't know about uh, live performances, when you go to see Aerosmith or a comedian, Dane Cook or whatever, sometimes they'll have their logo uh, uh, built into the light, like Batman almost, the logo in the sky. Yeah, so it was going to be. So I went to the chairman of Coke, and he goes, I really like this idea. And he gave me 
several hundred thousand dollars to go investigate and made a deal with the university professor and we started building this whole plan is that <laughs> we were going to shock the world <laughs> and um we progressed fairly far till we had to go to the faa and they said are you out of your mind you're going to create a laser field that will take every plane in the sky that passes through it and cut it in half and i said <laughs> well just for an hour you know <laughs> I mean, how much damage could we really do? And so obviously that got shut down. And, and I'll never forget, my, my daughter was 10, at, probably six or seven at the time. And she said, Dad, that's not a good idea. What if it was cloudy and you can't see the moon? <laughs> like, Damn, I never thought of clouds. <laughs> so unfortunately, the chairman of Coke two years later did an interview with Forbes or Fortune talking about big ideas and he brought up that one and who knew the internet would record your ideas forever <laughs> so that one has popped up so i thought i would preempt in case you had it in your notes from your research group i do <laughs> i might have it in here somewhere that, um, okay so turner notices you and you have a uh, they they call you and you have a meeting over yeah, there another a, one of your famous meetings well, i had a burning desire to i had always been in marketing i always been the l in a pnl I wanted to be a P. I wanted to show that we could grow the business. I didn't want to, to always be the expense part of the business. And Turner was looking for somebody who could take these, I'll call them generic brands. You know, history has a great advantage. It's called the History Channel. Comedy Central connotes laughter. TBS and TNT are alphabet soup. They're named for the creator. And I don't mean God, I mean Ted Turner at some point in time, <laughs> played a dual role. And so it was essential as more choice came, multi-channel universe, they needed to have brands. And so instead of looking at a TV executive to run the, the business, they looked at a marketer. And they asked me to do it, and I thought it was a unique and different challenge, and I took the challenge in 2000. Okay, so in 2000, you, you go in, you take how many interviews do you have? Three or four. Three or four. And you meet with the big guy? Met with the big guy. Okay. Tell me about that meeting. Because this is another situation like Ovitz, Ted Turner, like like you said, there's Ted Turner and there's God in Atlanta. Uh, you know, who knows more po who's more powerful? Uh, you know, Ted, Ted had different notions. His thoughts were absolutely correct. He just expressed them in a different way. And a lot of the things he thought we actually executed. For example, he thought TBS should be half hours, TNT should be hours. So what he didn't say was co genres, comedy and drama. He talked about run times. And so at the time, TBS and TNT were running comedy and drama. Yeah, but they were, they were a mishmash. They had documentaries and concerts and wrestling, and they both had the same sports. And they were called T1 and T2 by the cable operator. And the company had the foresight to say that if we don't differentiate these brands, the cable operators aren't going to value them separately. And But he wanted you to come in and figure out a way to differentiate these brands with your marketing background, right. but also with your ability to figure out how to take things to the next level. Exactly. Now, where, tell, me, tell me where TNT and TBS were on the landscape in 2000 in terms of cable television. Were they you know, still huge, or was USA still taking a... Uh, when, when I started, TNT was number six, and I took over TBS in 2003, and it was number four. Got it. And so TNT um, 
just was a collection of movies and off-network TV, TV runs, and it had had cartoons from the cartoon, you know, and TNT had been born out of the MGM library, had supported the Hanna-Barbera library. Ted Turner's genius was he bought these giant pools of assets and built networks out of them. And so he bought what he needed and he used what he bought. And so they needed to have a personality, a brand, a resonance, where the viewer knew that what to expect because with variety, which is great for advertisers, but you don't know what to expect. And so it just became, as proliferation of channels exploded, it became so important. And so when you got there, what... They didn't have any original programming. They didn't have original Not programming. Not one original programming. They had a few movies, original movies. Got it. And so you get there, and when do you? When is the uh, both networks branded uh, the way they were, which TBS, very funny, and when did so that happen? The first thing we did was we talked to viewers. You know, television's a business of demographics. Soft drinks is a business of psychographics, what's in people's minds. So we brought a real consumer product orientation to television. What do people want to watch? What do they like? And, and basically, we found five clusters of viewers, very quickly, cultural highbrows who just thought TV was the idiot box. And all they would watch would be emergency broadcasts and an occasional show. So it made no sense to go after people who were not predisposed to watch television. You had potatoes. You had TV junkies who watched everything. You had a very defined group of sports fans that moved like a school of fish from sport to sport, then watching highlights of the sports they just watched. And then you found two very distinct groups. One, that want watched television that made them think and feel. That they wanted TV that touched their heart and their mind. And another group who literally wanted TV to be their Prozac. They wanted laughter. And it was very important. And so those clear defaults became the basis of we know drama, touching your heart and mind, and very funny, reminding people that that's the end result of watching TBS. It's a very funny network. And we picked something in both of those that were kind of in the vernacular, so that it seemed very familiar to people. And again, not to uh, make a joke or light or shit on uh, the way marketing is or advertising, but again, the first time I heard TBS very funny, I was like, God, you know, the pay millions of dollars to get people to come up with very funny right but it works but like every you said, time the simple you have a conversation with somebody you go very funny you think of tbs yeah and that's what it's just like you said the simplest things the simplest are the best things work and so we defined who we are very funny we know drama and then we deliver against it and our first original series to say we know drama was the closer which turned out to be it'll be one of the top three cable series of all time and take us back to how that came about because here you are you're at a network that doesn't have any original programming you're developing your first thing how do you decide out of all the people pitching you out of all the scripts because that was one of the first ones yeah. that that actually was fascinating about you in the development period if i'm not mistaken you really didn't develop that many dramas that year. I think there were only two or three. Yeah, we didn't have much money. <laughs> you didn't yeah. have much money. So I think you did two or three pilots. I can't right. remember. And probably, I don't know if you can either. No, we did two. And we put them both on the air. The other was called Wanted. Wanted. Okay. Which Got it. So the closer goes on the air. And, and, and how did you decide that that was? I, and did I, you I know from the give... beginning that you thought it was going to be a success? No. You know, 
I have to give great credit to Michael Wright, who who is a brilliant, brilliant man who is uh, basically uh, yeah, runs I mean, everything. Uh, he runs the creative, the programming side of the business for us, and Michael. You know, can I interrupt one second? Michael yeah. said something to me that I'll I'll always remember, and and maybe he would he would be uh, humble and he would say, "Oh, Barry, you know, a lot of people have said it, but it just resonated with me." He said, "I said, how do you how do you do it? So you know, it just seems like you have this thing with talent and with the show is that it just seems like everything you touch." Uh, turns to gold and he looked at me and he said Barry what I try to do is I try to hire very 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 talented people and then I get the fuck out of the way I don't think he said the F word but I'm paraphrasing but Michael coined a phrase that I use all the time talent doesn't make hit executives don't make hit television programming talent does and so our job is to recruit to support to help and to market the shit out of what they make our job's not to go hire them for their vision then tell them their vision's wrong and that's why people who work with us have a very usually a very good experience and they'll come back so normally in uh, for our audience if you're doing a network show like a regular network show on one of the major uh, primetime networks and you have a show like the closer what happens is you have your table read and then there's all these network executives that are making notes, going to the showrunner, the writers, the star, saying, hey, listen, this, this part doesn't work here. Can you change this? Hey, you got, can't say that. You can't do that, whatever. And my feeling when I met with Michael Wright that day was that, I mean, the notes were like always minimal. And if they were minimal, they were in a way because Michael came from a background, I believe he was an actor. He was. And so he came from that background, which was talent friendly. He knew how to talk to these people in a way that was really special that other people in those positions didn't know. And just to give you an example of the kind of thing that happened to me when I was working on television, I remember I was working on a television show with Peter Tolan who you probably worked with a number of times, and uh, and uh, Dave Chappelle, and I remember we did the t- uh, the the run through, and Jamie Tarsus, who at the time was the head of the network, she sat down, and uh, she just started right away, and maybe she didn't mean to, but she just said, "Okay, well, these are the things that we uh, would like to see um, changed here." Um, and before she said another word, he stood up, he threw his script at her, it hit her in the chest and fell to the floor, and he said, well, you should get another fucking writer. That's, and, that's one way. And, and the point being is that it's not that Jamie Tarsus was bad at what she did. She's a great executive. But at the t- time, she, I don't think she started as an actor. She didn't know. And these people sometimes are very sensitive, and you have to figure out ways to navigate and I always felt like he knew how to do that, and there weren't these people over-noting these shows. Correct. You know, Michael, it's kind of the Mr. Ed theory of notes. He only speaks when he has something to say, and because he's judicious about what he has to say, I find most of the time he's usually right, and people appreciate that because he's not saying, that shirt should be green rather than blue. And so he let them build their vision there was not the south was underrepresented on television 
fact that women leads were underrepresented on television, that the closer had a lot of qualities that you weren't seeing on TV. And so we zigged rather than zagged. Everybody was going in one direction. We took a similar form in the procedural and built it into something that Kira won the Emmy for as Best Actress, which usually you don't win for a procedural. And it was a, a big, big success that helped fuel Michael's growth and my growth. And um, it Yeah, that was the first Emmy for an original program for uh, uh, on, on the network. Yep. I think just uh, going back, because I think our audience would love to hear this, because when you say a procedural, I think they'd want to hear from uh, a guy in your uh, position what the difference between a procedural uh, drama is. and Well... Because I think they, because uh, a lot of times we say things like you right. said the Mr. Ed reference. I don't think anybody watching here in this room knows Mr. Ed, but I remember Wilbur get off my back, the horse, the talking horse. Okay, so. God, do I feel old? Um, <laughs> and yes, this was a show from the '60s of a talking horse, and God, do I feel old? Um, so I apologize, listeners. That's okay. Um, but get back to the the, the difference the, in the dramas. The, and the drama, the way that we looked at it is, is that Closer was a self-encapsulated police procedural that had a beginning, middle, and end that resolved itself every episode. And yes, there were B and C stories that went across, but certainly not serialized and not with the same characters every week. There was a core group of characters, but it was very much episodic television that featured police, featured legal, medical. Those fall into the procedural vein. And today's form of storytelling has not necessarily evolved past it, but it's much more complex. That's right. And, you know, today's technology enables you to be serialized on cable. In the early 2000s, you were praying an audience came, and you wanted to make it so simple that if they didn't come the next week but came the next, they weren't excluded from the process. And so it was really important to... to emphasize that form of storytelling what was also smart about the show is you spent a little extra money and had a lot of characters in the show that other people around the globe and around the country could relate to so if you didn't relate to Kira Sedgwick you might be able to relate to Corey Reynolds and if yep. you weren't going to relate to him possibly yeah, another a very diverse cast a lot of characters and it, which gave you a lot of storytelling it wasn't claustrophobic it wasn't just two or three people there was a lead but it, all the eccentricities of the other characters were able to play through through the season. And James Duff, who created that show and the spinoff Major Crimes, you know, he was the voice of Brenda Lee Johnson, and he did a brilliant job. He probably didn't get enough credit for what he did. Well, let's talk about uh, something uh, fairly recently, Southland. Because, yeah. you know, there's two things that I think that you've done and we're going to talk a lot about, and probably more, you'll probably tell me, but of shows that aren't necessarily lighting the world on fire where they are, but you and your team have a vision like, hmm, well, if we get that show off NBC and we get it on our network, I think we can make this show a hit. Or, you know, you look at Southland or you look at, let's say, Conan's talk show, which we're going to talk a lot about later. But look at Southland. That was the first time, I believe, you looked at a show that was, a network was really, it was failing, it was canceled. Everybody knew it was a great show. But you didn't do this with the rest of development, yet you do it with Southland. And I think I know why, but, but 
but tell me why do you think we did it because i feel like the characters in southland you root for the characters in southland they may not be huggable and lovable but they're flawed huggable and lovable in Arrested Development, the characters are brilliant, but not one of them are huggable and lovable. And in my opinion, you don't root for any of them. So you don't want to see them win. And so I believe your network is about wanting to root for people and not be like, hey, this is too hip for the room. Well, I, I think... Am I wrong? No, I mean, you're not wrong. But I think one of the other things that we look at is the reason why it was being canceled off the network. And Southland was part of the Jay Leno controversy. And because it was a coarse, rough, not huggable characters, it couldn't air at 9 o'clock. And so NBC could either run it on Saturday or Sunday, and they were a little bit painted in the corner. The same with Cougar Town. We felt Cougar Town had a lot of life with it, and I'm fascinated. You know, the show was canceled on ABC. It was behind Modern Family, and they haven't come up with anything behind Modern Family <laughs> The Bitch in Apartment 23, um, Neighbors, none of those shows have um, done as well as Cougar Town. So we look for situations, and then we don't really care where a good idea comes from. Not every baby has to be birthed by us. It's not always about our ideas. And these were things that had pre-sold demand, and we felt Southland could help explain the we know drama phrase because it is a brilliant drama. I look at Southland as like, and again, people might disagree with me, but it's, I mean, like The Wire, it's just got that kind of feeling like there's something really special going yeah. on. It can't go where The Wire went because of the network you're on, right. but it has that thing that, that, that shows you a certain world that you can't It was see. a different form of storytelling. It was rough. It was real. And we had five seasons on our air, and I was extraordinarily proud of that. Oh, incredible show. Tell me, tell me about sports and your networks, because you get there, all you have is the, is the uh, Atlanta Braves, I believe. Right. And, and uh, did you uh, have the Hawks, too, or no? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, i, I got to give Ted Turner credit. Again, his genius. He created networks that had the hybrid of entertainment and sports. No other cable network has both entertainment and sports. ESPN's all sports, and other USA and FX are all entertainment. And what this has allowed us to do, and not only build reach that's comparable to a broadcast network, but also be able to go to the cable operators and command a higher price. Because sports are, and I believed strongly that sports were live male drama. They are live male drama and sometimes live female drama, which you can get in any relationship. Right. But I think the thing is, is that you have to pay so much for it that it's almost like this is what's fascinating about what you've done here is that you you overpay for things. Many times you don't make money on those things you lose money on them but they drive the business in other ways and you have to make a decision you have to write that check and know that you're never going to get that money back but you're going to get it back down the line in all these other areas yeah, and from your marketing background that's probably where that well, comes that's from. having a strategy you know walmart has loss leaders that drive traffic in and then you fill your basket with a bunch of other stuff the same principle sports while we don't get it back in ad dollars 
we get it back in cable rate. We get it back in advertising. It lifts the patina of the brand. It's an amazing promotional platform. But it's an interesting thing you said and how the relationship is to stores. Because you go into Costco, you get the little flyer, you say, oh, my God, these, these uh, Sonicare brushes, they're, they're $59. I can't believe it. I'm just going to go into Costco. I'm going to walk in, and I'm going to get my toothbrushes. I'm going to come out. And then you leave, and it's like $576. And you're like, what happened here? And so it's the same with the networks where you bring this thing in. It, Absolutely. You're not going to make money off that one thing, but then it brings everything else around five times. Absolutely. And Tell me about Charles Barkley and how that came about. Charles Barkley started the year that I started it, and I can't claim any credit. Mark Lazarus and his team brought him in, and they brought him in by saying one thing to him. Charles can be Charles. You can go do what you do. And Charles Barkley, I think, is the best sportscaster of this generation because he has a point of view. He has a voice. He has. Which is opinion. the same thing you look for in a sitcom star, exactly. a drama star, or in sports. You a have to have the point of view. star is a star. That's right. And Charles Barkley is a star. If you hate him, you watch him. If you love him, you watch him. And Charles is. Um, I think Charles is a great metaphor for our, our point of view towards talent. You let talented people do what they do. And there's some nights he says stuff that I cringe because I'm going to be cleaning up a few things. <laughs> and David Levy runs sports and entertainment will be cleaning up a Another few things. Another amazing executive. But at the end of the day, we have Charles Barkley on our air. Yeah, you do. And what, what, that's the one person on the air that technically does not fit your network's brand. No. He's, I think he's the only one on the air. You can't talk about scripted shows because you've syndicated so many things. There's all different varieties of things. But I'm talking a personality on there. He's the only guy who, if you were to say, hmm, Charles Barkley, TBS or TNT, like one of these things is not like the other. Right. But you made the decision long ago to go with that. He's created some bumps along the road, but again, those bumps create viewers, interest, and he is one of the best guys out there. And you watch him. It's amazing. Like And, and Shaquille O'Neal is one of the biggest presents in the world. It's like literally watching when you know Howard Stern came on America's Got Talent, and you're saying to yourself, wait, you know, Howard... He isn't even being Howard, and he completely like navigated the way where you don't even know what you don't even know anybody else is around. And so I think it's hard for got to be hard for people like Shaq. He's, I mean, he believes that he's bigger than life, and he is. And normally he would be, but he goes on that show, and for him to be number two, to you know Kenny Smith or whatever Charles well, Barkley. I, I think it's all about chemistry. I think anytime if we were to do Anatomy, it's a great TV shows. Mm -hmm. It's always about chemistry. And Ernie Johnson is the traffic cop, the navigator, the adult in the room, whatever you want to say. And Kenny Smith, Ernie Johnson, Charles Barkley, and Shaq together are far better than they are individually. But the other two allow Charles to be Charles. And Ernie clears the, the traffic for Charles. And Shaq has been with us two years, and he's doing great. And it, it's fun to watch the boys compete because at their heart these guys are competitors and yeah. all they want to do is get better and sometimes all they want to do is have the last word and we as the viewers benefit yeah it's amazing all right 
let's talk about the decision to really go for it in terms of syndicated television. When I talk about the syndicated television, there's different kinds of syndication. And um, there's the kind of syndication where, like, the people from CBS Productions or uh, they take out Arsenio, they go to the uh, NATP convention, they bring a, a, a pilot that they've done of his, they work hard to try to sell it and clear it in all the markets, which is, I believe, 212 different markets in the country. And if they can clear, you know, 85 to 95 percent of the markets, they're golden and they're going. That's that kind of syndication. Then there's the kind that that a cable network will be like, hey, we look at uh, two broke girls, two broke girls. Let's see, we're going into our fourth season. We got to start the negotiations a year ago. We got to work hard to lock down the money we're going to pay for this. And we want to get this before anybody else in the country gets it, any of those 212 markets. We want our company to be the one that puts it out there. So you're rushing to beat these people to go out and syndicate it because Seinfeld, like Home Improvement, it was an $800 million syndication. Those deals aren't don't happen anymore, but where they went out all across the markets. But now another strategy that probably you come up with is how are we going to take away those opportunities and grab these shows for ourselves so they won't get those shows anymore? How did you go about, what was the first show that you said, hey, I succeeded, I took this away from all those markets and I got it on my network? It was Sex of the City, which was a very, I, we took, started on TBS in 2003. And one of our internal mantras was to move from Mayberry to Manhattan. <laughs> and TBS was built on the Andy Griffith show and a lot of, su- you know, southern rerun type stuff. And Sex in the City is what we called a virtual original. It had 100% awareness. Everybody had heard of Sex in the City. But HBO was only in 30% of the homes in America. So we convinced HBO to sell it to us exclusive two years before it went to syndication that you so aptly described. And it became a virtual original for us. And it absolutely shook the cobwebs off of, t- of TBS. But also, you probably ran into some uh, interesting creative issues with Michael Patrick King and HBO. Because here, here they have a show that's running about 28 minutes and 30 seconds with their teasers for their network. Your network is with commercials is probably 21 minutes and 30 seconds or 22 minutes. So now you have to shave off about five or six minutes. Yeah, we went the other way. We played them long. You did? We did. We played them in 36, 37-minute episodes, and we stacked them, three and four of them. So together they hit time. So we did a Rubik's Cube of them. We worked with Michael Patrick to edit, and – you know, with all due respect to Sex in the City, there was a lot of bra sex in that show. Bra sex? Yeah. The ladies weren't naked. There was a lot of bra sex. There was a lot of women wearing bras. I've never heard of bra sex bra before. Sex. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I've never had bra sex. Well, <laughs> when you work in cable television, maybe we coined the phrase. But... Um, a lot of the things that they shot for HBO. I'm looking forward to having bra sex I, at some point. Hopefully though. tonight, <laughs> whenever this airs. Um, what we found after doing a very careful analysis was 
except for Kim Cattrall on occasion, they were always clothed, you know, just wearing bras or panties or what have you. And we could show that. So we didn't have to alter the show. We had to clean up a few little things in dialogue. But probably about 93 to 97% of every episode aired. So the writing stayed intact. Michael Patrick King was great with the integrity of the way we presented his product. Syndication was the one, the legitimate syndication, the local station, had to get it to 21 minutes. They cut out the B story. We embraced it, kept the B story, the C story, the bras, and were able to create something that really brought a lot of attention, both from the viewer and from the advertising market who wanted to be associated with HBO product. And it worked incredibly well for us and really started us on our way. And they were, but the HBO was doing about 13 episodes a year. I believe, and they, correct? We got it with 78 episodes. 78, so that makes sense about the time they were, whereas you go for uh, a show like, let's say, Everybody Loves Raymond, and there's like, you know, 150, 200 episodes. Um, So tell me your first multicam show that you snatched from the jaws of uh, regular syndication and brought well, we didn't snatch a lot of multicam. What we became was it used to be cable had to wait three years later. That's right. So in essence, seven years from the date. We said, we're not second-class citizens to anybody. This makes no sense. And we bullied our way and used some of our financial leverage to start day and date. And, you know, a show like um, Two and a Half Men, we didn't buy because it was waiting three years show like Big Bang Theory, we came day and date with local stations, and I really admire Chuck Lorre because he has said he's seen growth in the fifth and sixth year because of the pervasive sampling on TBS. Could you explain to our audience day and date? Meaning that a show, a comedy especially, has to get to 88 episodes, four seasons. It's interesting because, you know, the way it was was they do 22 the first season, 25... 25 and 27 right now it's 88 22 times four yeah there's no shows that are doing 100 over four years because it's weird because i was just talking to andy ackerman here one of the podcasts he was talking about the new adventures of uh old christina and he was saying how uh the show was canceled at 90 episodes and uh he didn't understand why it was canceled and he kept talking about how all they needed was 10 more and they could have got to that 100 to syndicate so you're saying now yeah when did that change it's evolved over the past four or five years and again more cable networks more competition better opportunity and, and there's some shows that are coming out with 66 episodes so it's um it, it's always evolving but we have not seen, I'm not sure there's one broadcast show that's in the hit status that's doing 25 a year. I think Big Bang did 24 one year. Yes. And that might be about it. So the way that the studios make back their deficits and make their money is twofold. They sell it for a fee and they sell barter. They get time in our broadcast and time in all the local broadcasts. Just so you uh, know, the audience knows, in each broadcast normally half of the advertising time is local advertising and half of the advertising is national advertising and they'll do barter for normally one of those normally the yeah and so if they have barter in a tbs show and barter in 212 local stations 
then when they put that rating together, it gives them, on a successful show, a big number to go out and sell. And so, in essence, it's an unwired third network. So you could buy today, you could buy Big Bang on CBS. You can buy it nationally on TBS. You can buy it nationally on Warner Brothers Syndication. You can buy it locally from your local station. Same show, four different ways for advertisers to participate. And, you know, I always thought that a show, if it was airing in syndication, it would hurt um, the original shows. It never hurts it. No, you know, I come from an industry where sampling is everything. Coke wants to be a McDonald's and Burger King and Dieter Stadium and the Staples Center so people can try the product. But in entertainment, we keep the windows so tightly closed. And Big Bang Theory has helped so many people. 54% of the people who watch Big Bang Theory on TBS have never seen it on CBS. Those are new fans that are coined and discovered. And we're talking about millions of fans. And so CBS is seeing this meteoric rise because we're creating new fans who then are finding it on CBS and are finding it on iTunes. And so, you know, people only have the capacity for eight to ten channels. And if TBS is in their conscious consideration but CBS isn't, CBS benefits. And so when you're buying these things for syndication, when you're buying these things for your schedule, you have to look at the ability to grow fan base and the benefits of that. And if it has a small fan base to start, it's not going to create a big fan base. And you saw the same thing with NCIS on USA. It propelled USA to great heights and made C- you know, NCIS one of the top two or three shows on all of TV. And that segues nicely into the next thing I wanted to talk about is your competition. Because, again, you go to these networks, you do a great job, and you become number, you know, very close to number one. USA always has this hold they're always competitive how do you uh go after them how do you how do you strategize how i'm going to take them down like how you know when let's just say ncis they were in a situation where they were bidding for that i'm sure you guys were too no that was one that was a sleeper that sold for barely any money and it's probably made USA a billion dollars. It's so they took the chance probably after the first year to buy it. No, they took in the fourth year. Nobody else wanted it. It's one of the few, you know, one of the things about our business, there are surprises. And this one sold for about the fee of a good daytime show, 600,000 for multiple year rights. And it started slow and it started building and then it became a freight train and locomotive. So I would imagine USA probably has about a 95% profit margin in that show, and it propelled them, you know, to great heights, and we missed it. Tell me about a negotiation that you had for a show when you knew uh, a network, let's say like USA or another network was going forward, and you knew everybody was all in, everybody wanted it. Tell me one that you won, one that you lost. I'll tell you one that I'm glad we lost in hindsight. the most expensive TV show ever sold in the history of syndication is The Sopranos. I did not know that. Yes. $2.5 million to A&E. And it didn't work. It never was a hit in syndication. We made Sex in the City very successful. HBO then brought out The Sopranos. USA bid, TNT bid, 
A&E blew them away with a bid. I was in the hospital with kidney stones. Ouch. And my boss, Phil Kent, was leading the bidding. And I gave him a number where I thought we should drop out. And he got enthusiastic and went past that number. And thank goodness we didn't get it because it would have been debilitating. 2.5 million an episode. It's interesting you say that, you know, and forget the amount of money that was paid per episode for a second, if you don't mind. I believe that would have been a hit on TNT. It might have because the environment, the environment of We Know Drama and all the dramas, we absolutely believed it would work. I mean, we bid tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So I'm not trying to sit here and pretend we were, you know, brilliant. We got lucky. You said one we missed. That was one. We gave it our best shot. But we had a walking away, which we always have a walk away price. And um, tell me one that you were fighting for and you got. Well, I think almost everyone we've got, we fought pretty hard for. Sex in the City was a very difficult one because it had never been done before. HBO, I give them great credit because they took the risk. In selling was to us. Chris Albrecht the, there then? Chris Albrecht before the He was just here stations. a couple of day, ah. days ago. He's going to be on soon. Well, that's great. Yeah, he took the risk because he saw the value in helping and using us as the broadcast network to seed sex in the city. And that was a fairly visionary move on his part. And that was a tough one, but we got it. And we knew it wasn't going to last forever, but we knew it would shake the cobwebs off of TBS. And it was a very good short-term play for a long-term benefit. Got it. So you basically win on everything. No. Maybe. Tell me an old show that for some reason it just keeps on going and going and the ratings are insane. Like, Is it something like Saved by the Bell or All in the Family? Seinfeld still. I think its last episode was 1998. So that's 15 years going on 16 years off the air. And it's our 7 o'clock show. And it performs (laughs) within the top two or three at cable. So it, it's incredible. Um, it's incredible. And it's in its fourth cycle. And I think we've renewed it to 2021 already. And so in the renewal process, do you have to renegotiate again against all these other people who want to take it away from you? you or know, do they just give up after? I think they've given up <laughs> on that one. I, Ted Turner bought that one for then a record price of a million dollars an episode. That was a million an episode. And there were like 200, weren't yeah, there? Yeah, there was a lot of money back in, when he bought it, like in... 2000 because this is what's fascinating about your kind of syndication i don't even know if there's a name for it versus the other kind but when you're syndicating a show let's say like arsenio these and you're clearing that these networks are not are they're paying like a pittance for these shows i mean it's an embarrassing amount of money they're paying meanwhile you guys are paying a million dollars an episode well there's a couple of things on an arsenio show or some of these things they're cobbling together this unwired network yeah. To sell advertising, you know, and then when it was a big hit like Oprah, I think they were paying eight hundred thousand a week. Yeah. So I think the price correlates to the confidence that people have in the show. Um, we m- much more have to gamble because we have many more competitors um, in the space, and so not all of them work, but thankfully some of them have. All right, let's move into uh, your foray into late night. Okay. This is always uh, a fascinating thing for me because, you know, the never been done before business. You talk about, you know, your brand. It's never been done before. 
then you go into a situation where you take a um, a show and that's on uh, network television, HBO no less. You bring it on, you launch it, it works. You start that model, you do the same model in TNT. You do originals like The Closer, goes well, never been done before. And now you're in a situation where you look at a guy and again, I'm just it's just factual information because Conan has been a, a huge part of my my life and in the business. But he's a guy who was doing really, really well where he was at NBC. He made the jump, and for some reason, America spoke and said, "We don't like you on this. We don't like you at this time of night. The audience here, we, we're not going to watch you." And he was put in this weird position. Um, he lashed out at uh, Jay Leno really hard. Um, Jay Leno always being one of the most genteel guys ever. Always rallied the whole community against Leno. But in essence, America, the fact was, America didn't want to watch him at that time period. So he's off the air Technically, you could say, if he were sitting here, hey, I, I failed to get the viewers. But you work on an initiative to bring him to TBS and get him on your air when he has essentially failed at that time slot before. Is it the same thing with Southland and the same thing, you know, no, in the other instances? First of all, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to argue your fact. Please. Um, Conan, I think, was put into a situation where he couldn't win. His 10 o'clock lead-in was Jay Leno, which did not work, which led into the local news, which also did not help him. And he was only given seven months. So I don't think Conan's trial on The Tonight Show was was a fair opportunity. All right, we so so no, this is interesting. So let's pretend that NBC had their normal regular programming on, okay. and everything, including Southland, and whatever it was, and and Leno wasn't there, and they just moved Conan in. Do you think he would have gotten the ratings that Leno was getting? No, I don't think Conan's humor is as broad as Leno's. Humor. Well, this is what I'm trying to say. Okay. I'm just I'm defending my guy. You should. I, I want do you not to. think he failed. I think he was put into a situation and he was part of a legacy that you graduated to the Tonight Show that Jay Leno and Johnny Carson in a different era defined. Look, Dave went on CBS. There was no late night. Right. He went on. There was nothing. He there was no lineage before him. He goes on and he's got seven million people every night with no history of a late-night show there. Conan goes into The Tonight Show in a history of 30 years before him, and for some reason, what I'm saying is I'm not indicting him, and when I say that, I'm just saying that that style of humor was better suited for the audience at 1230, I thought, than it was we there. We could also argue, were people satisfied that they already got The Tonight Show at 10 o'clock? Because Leno was there. Was he truly doing the late show under the guise of the Tonight Show because he already had the first show that led into him? But so. I think, but I think the most important thing I'm trying to get at here is that 
you know, Conan is so powerful and such a force and such an amazing man to yep. be around. I mean, it's just like when you're around him, it's like you're you're just he's just larger than life. He's just so brilliant and so unique and so special a talent. So it was disappointing when that happened. For me, it was disappointing to see that. If it's disappointing for me, imagine what it was for him and his staff, who he was so amazing with. But you decide, you know, it's very rare when you see somebody who, regardless of the circumstances or whatever, however you want to think of it, the fact is the numbers don't lie. But you said to yourself creatively, you know something? The numbers are lying. I believe this guy is one of the most unique voices out there, and he's a genius, and I'm going to make a deal to get him on our network. I'm going to do everything in my power to get him on. And you get him on in 2010, and true to your word, things go better, and now uh, you renewed him uh, again. Yeah, you know, we we looked at our business on TBS, and we decided that we needed to be in late night. That was an area we weren't playing in. And... A good segue into this, we talked about syndication. You mentioned Arsenio. Well, Telepictures had created George Lopez to take out. The recession hit. No local stations were willing to pay any money. We thought that George was a very viable idea, and so we cut a deal with Warner Brothers, and we brought Lopez to the air. I remember that. I remember I was involved in that pilot and having people on. And I just want to share with you something because from my perspective. Some things don't work that are great. And I believe that George was great. I believe the whole vibe of the show was wonderful. I believe when you were watching, I believe everything was really special to the eye. But for some reason, again, America, there was something that maybe led them away from it. Maybe George, you know, might have not been as huggable and lovable as other talk show hosts, regardless. I thought it was an amazingly well put together show, and um, but the match between with Conan and George Lopez, it's probably not the best fit as well. Well, we we got into the business, and one of the things you're talking about, a theme today, is trying things, taking risks, and taking a lot of risk in a world that you have to take risks to be successful. So we want to move into a different day part, and. I could argue that David Letterman coming to CBS was such a huge news event. There were only three major networks at the time that he could draw 7 million people. And David Letterman is one of the greatest talents of all time. Absolutely. There's no disputing that fact. We put George into a world where there was a lot of competition. um, And the show did well. But the show wasn't as good as we thought it should be. But I'm going to the end of the story. What we saw in Conan was somebody that could be the face of TBS. We had been very successful in building hit series on TNT. It is much more difficult to build hit original comedies. Look, I'm a part of one of one of the failures. Right. Frank TV. Yep. Well, you know, that was a fun show. But, yeah, it's hard to draw a nightly audience. And here's Conan. He's sitting there on the side. We all assumed he was going to Fox. Fox was making all kinds of machinations. You don't assume anything, Steve. Well, you know, just one day it it hit me that for us to not have a conversation would be irresponsible. 
So Michael and I discussed it. He knew Gavin Pallone. I didn't never even met Gavin. Gavin is a tremendous uh, manager and television producer and movie producer. Um, and he was doing a show for us called My Voice. And with Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan. And um, he set a meeting. And we went over to um, William Morris to Rick Rosen's office. And I walked up to him and said, Conan, 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 Conan. And he started <laughs> laughing. You did it again. And You're going to a meeting again. Three and a half hours, you know, about the Civil War, about. Um, did you have a plan going in? I had written notes to of the points that I wanted to make. So this is one of the first times you actually wrote down I didn't, notes. I didn't pull the plan out, but I did write down the plan. And um, we connected, and we connected with Jeff Ross. Jeff yeah. Ross, not the comedian Jeff Ross. No, Jeff Ross, the executive producer, producer of Conan. And we laid out a vision that we were going to build TBS with this in its centerpiece. And that Conan would move from being a, a, an employee on a grid to an owner on a network. That Conan would own his show. He would be able to produce shows for us. And he has Pete Holmes coming to the air. That's soon. right. I'm not sure when this is airing. But Pete Holmes starting October 28th, yes. 12 o'clock, please we'll, tune in. He, we, we, everybody will know and they will tune in. And we, um, we're we doing another, you know, a scripted pilot with um, Conan, who's also got Rebel Wilson's new show on ABC. And Super fun night. We have um, given him an environment where he's very happy. Well, you made him, an, you, you gave him ownership, I mean, almost full ownership in I mean, who who does that? Nobody's ever done that before, have they? Well, you know, he brought us something, too. I think... Tell me anybody in the history of television that's given somebody the kind of control and ownership that you gave Conan. I don't know. All I know is it goes along with our creative philosophy. You entrust the people to do the job that you recruited them to do. And, get and you the support the hell out of them and you get the fuck out of them. <laughs> You I know. just wanted to hear you say the F word. Yeah, I'll say the F word. Um, I think my parents have stopped <laughs> listening by now. I would bet. I don't think they have the patience. I think most people have stopped listening. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm having a good time. No, this is the best. Um, so I, um, I, I sit here today, three years in. We have an incredibly large, successful late-night business. We won the Emmy last year, not for the show, but for the digital piece of Team Coco, which yep. is a... Very large business. Very large. People would be stunned how big that business is. And Conan's consumed in multiple ways. It is probably the first piece of convergent television that exists today that people are consuming via the web, mobile, internet, DVR, and on linear television. And he has proven to be everything we thought and more. And so we couldn't be happier. Tell me the day you got the call that he was coming to your network. I, we, okay, I was in Vegas, and I'm trying. I don't even remember why. I was in Vegas, and I got a BlackBerry message. May they rest in peace. <laughs> um, and it was a picture, and I opened the picture. And it was Conan bending over with that shock of red hair dangling in the in the air on a crate because he was rehearsing for his tour. He walked outside of a 
airplane hangar and he was signing the contract and it said we're done and I took that picture and all of my senior team has it blown up and framed hanging in their office fantastic and it was um it was a great moment and continues to be fantastic let's talk about some more holy shit moments in your uh career at the network tell me a story for the audience that just we would never believe that it happened something that's happened to you in your career that just like people would have to say holy shit i can't believe this happens in television i told you the ovid story i told you the conan story you know i've been fortunate to be one of those kind of people who are in the right place at the right time with the right bullshit (laughs) and um and um I tried to advertise on the moon. I tried to break into <laughs> late night television. And, um, you know, I, I, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We have a really good time. It, this is a we, not a me. I use the word I a lot, which I wish I could edit out. But in a one-on-one interview, it, it, it's something to use because I am blessed with an incredible team. Our rookie on our team has been with us nine years. That's the newest person. We wow. trust each other. And, you know, we're so fortunate to be able to work in such a creative environment and work at a place like Turner. I do think we're advantaged by being in Atlanta. I do think there's a lot of things that happen in the industry that we're not privy to and we don't see that could influence us in different ways. But we took the marketing and viewer perspective more than the critical perspective, more than any other perspective. And... We appreciate talent. We value talent. We invest in talent. We like to take risks. And we're not always right, but we try to learn when we're wrong. And it's really hard out there in television today. It's the hardest it's ever been. If I had one great lesson, I wish I would have celebrated more back when. Because when I get to go down memory lane like today, we actually did some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And I wish I would have drunk and partied a little harder to celebrate those things because... It's hard. But you wouldn't look as youthful as you do today. Yes, I would not look as youthful as the 83-year-old man that I represent. <laughs> not a wrinkle on your face. No. Well, when, you're, when you have a round face, it doesn't wrinkle. The wrinkles are somewhere else. <laughs> that must explain why my stomach isn't wrinkled. Exactly. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. You are a funny man. So uh, tell me uh, a few other things that I want to talk to you about. Uh, tell me... Um, your greatest disappointment professionally? You know, I, I think our inability to um, to kind of see the convergence of digital. I, I'm actually proud that we did not go spend billions of dollars getting into the digital business. But you started the uh, super deluxe uh, digital uh, com- web portal. Yeah, the, the company, I, I wish that we would have had the foresight to have partnered, bought, acquired. You know, certainly something, I think AOL might have spoiled the digital world for all of us at Turner Time Warner. But I wish we would have had stronger micro brands you know, of our brands, meaning I wish TBS.com and TNT.com, but entertainment.coms really haven't evolved. And I would very much like to see us taking more swings and doing more shows and making sure we're, we're leading this effort called TV Everywhere. And I think this is the absolute right thing for our industry, whether 
as long as you subscribe to cable, you can watch anything, anytime on any device. And it really hasn't connected. It, it really hasn't become the household adoption. The idea is so great, but every cable company is taking a different perspective. Time Warner Cable's not in it at all. If you're a Time Warner subscriber, you can't get it. Dish has Dish everywhere. T DirecTV has DirecTV. Comcast has Xfinity. I wish as an industry we would realize that if we all came together, we could give the consumer incredible value mm. and solve a lot of our issues, but we can't get out of the way of ourselves on occasion. Got it. Tell me your proudest moment professionally. I, I think the day that TNT was part of the New York Times crossword puzzle and said TV network known for drama. Nice. And when it became part of the lexicon, when it became part of pop culture, it said to me that something that a lot of people didn't think you could brand TV networks was branded when the New York Times recognized it. Great. And finally, this is a two-part question. I want you to um, give advice to anybody in our audience who is sitting in a town somewhere uh, across the United States of the world, and they just they don't know what they're going to do. They don't know how to get where they want to go. They know they're they have the confidence, they know they have the ability, but they just don't know the path to get to the point where you are today. And then the second part of the question is, you work with so many talented people and so many talented artists, comedians, actors, actresses, showrunners. A little advice for the people who are the artists who are in our audience to think, what do I got to do to get to the next level and be recognized by somebody like Michael Wright or Steve Coonan? Well, I, I think I, I spend a lot of time with young people. I have a 26-year-old son and a 23-year-old daughter. And what I notice about these folks, about the younger generation, is they're, so they're in such a hurry to get to the destination. And it is truly a journey. And the only way to build a journey, and I've told a very long story today, but there were there were stops and junctions along the way that I built skills or I used skills. And to me, if you're wanting to be successful, it's not about being a fan. It's about building the skills to succeed. I am one of the few people who've come into television from a directly other industry at a pretty senior level and been successful because the skills that I brought of leadership and of strategic planning and of vision are universal. So you can build those at a Home Depot or a Coca-Cola or anywhere, then you can go apply them to a passion. And I'm a huge fan of television, but I'm a bigger fan of strategy and leadership. And the way to get noticed, if you're a young artist that really wants to get recognized, is to think through how to get somebody's attention and that doesn't mean fly a airplane or somebody used to send me, named Will used to send me his last will in the mail every week. <laughs> you know, I still remember his name. I don't remember his last name. I never hired the guy, but it, <laughs> but it was catchy. But the point is, you got to take the risk. You got to sacrifice. There's a lot of kids in Atlanta who want to be in entertainment. You're not going to be there from here. You have to be in LA. You have to be in New York. You have to wait tables. You have to do. This is an apprentice industry. 
this is an industry that you have to learn and build skills and knowledge. And you're n you can't look at the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. You can't look at the exceptions. You have to look at the rules. And a guy like Jim Parsons, who wins his third Emmy, you know, he knocked around for a long time, but he kept working in his craft and working in his craft and working in his craft. And he's at his top of his game, but it didn't happen overnight. And he's not someone that you would walk down the street and say movie star or TV star. But he is so skillful and so brilliant at what he does. He's one of the best there has been because he went from Houston, Texas to Los Angeles by taking the risks. Wow. Steve Coonan. You are a human holy shit moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been amazing. Been called a lot of things, usually with the word shit, but not a holy <laughs> shit. Uh, Thank this you, has Barry. Been this so was a lot of fun. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. It's been an honor to have you here. I'm so glad you made it. My Thank honor. you. Take care. All right. So you've been listening to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. As usual, if you like the show, Tell all your friends, and if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory, I'll scream your name, put you on shoulder. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.